Get Sleepy is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free and access weekly bonus episodes, extra long stories, and our entire back catalogue, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello. And welcome to Get Sleepy, where we listen, we relax, and we get sleepy. My name's Thomas, and I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in. This evening, Simon will be reading to us, and our story was written by Joe. We're about to step back in time meet one of the most significant figures in British history, Sir Winston Churchill. Prime Minister of Britain during the Second World War, he led the nation from the edge of defeat to momentous victory. Naturally, a great deal has been written about Churchill's political life. However, far less is known of his personal life and the man behind the politics. At his country house in Kent, Churchill was a writer, a painter, an animal lover, even a bricklayer. A man who understood the importance of leisure to one's soul. This is the Churchill that we shall meet very soon. But before we begin, let's spend a few moments, as we always do here, relaxing and transitioning into the night. If you haven't already done so, make sure you put any physical distractions to one side and bring your attention to my voice. With some calming deep breaths, Sense your muscles beginning to loosen. Tension falling away from your neck and shoulders. Aches and tiredness in your legs and feet. Just melting and dispersing as you sink into the supportive surface below. 
make sure your jaw is unclenched. This is a place where we tend to unconsciously hold tension. So just notice how by letting your jaw muscles relax, your whole face and whole head feel more at ease too. If you've got a lot of busy thoughts scuttling about in your mind, reassure yourself that this is quite normal. Many of us tend to do a lot of our thinking when we come to bed. I for one am a prime example of this. But of course, it isn't particularly helpful for our sleep. So, as and when those thoughts pop up, just give them a moment of acknowledgement. But then, say to them, Not now. Each time you respond, not now, you're letting your mind know that you've seen or heard that thought or reminder. But now is not the time for it to be dealt with. So, you can gently let go of the busyness in your mind. And anything important will no doubt resurface tomorrow, when you're awake and able to take action. For now, it's time to hear our story. So, with a clearer mind and a little imagination, picture a charming, red brick mansion brought to life by soft morning sunlight. This is where our story begins. Two stories high, its walls jut out in many different directions, each lined with wood-framed windows. Patches of wall are hidden behind plant life, the bright green stems of climbing vines twisting upwards towards the sun. Built upon raised ground, the mansion sits on its own little hill, looking out over a vast country estate. It's a splash of red amidst the green of lawns, gardens, trees and woodlands, and the blues of ponds, pools and lakes. This is Chartwell, the home of Winston Churchill, near Westerham, Kent, in the southeast of England. Purchased in 1922, 
it would remain his home for the next 40 years until the end of his life in 1965. And it was always held in great affection by Winston and his wife, Clementine. With a rich history of its own, the original Brick Manor dates back to the 14th century. Rumour has it that King Henry VIII stayed at Chartwell in the 16th century whilst he was wooing Anne Boleyn. Her own family residence at Hever Castle was less than five miles away. It wasn't its history that attracted Churchill, however, nor was it the estate itself, though he did proclaim it to be the most beautiful and charming I have ever seen. It was the view, more than anything, that persuaded him to lay down an offer. With its highest point at 650 feet above sea level, Chartwell offers magnificent views of the Kentish landscape. In the property and the grounds, we can assume that Winston saw great potential, an opportunity to mould the place into exactly what he and Clementine wanted. This process would involve extensive renovations. In fact, Winston wouldn't move into the house until 1924. Instead, renting a nearby farmhouse whilst his architect was at work. Eventually, though, it was ready. A charming red brick mansion, two stories high, with an extensive basement and attics. Along with its kitchen, dining room and drawing room, the house boasted 19 bedrooms and eight bathrooms. On the ground floor, there was a library, just across from Lady Churchill's private sitting room. And on the first floor was the study, Winston's workshop, where he would write so prolifically over the years. Outside of the house, all around the estate, further improvements were made with spectacular results. Of the 77 acres of garden and parkland surrounding the great house, only the woodland was left relatively untouched. Everything was landscaped. Plants and trees were replanted, ponds and lakes formed and then filled. Buildings were erected, including some built by Winston himself, who developed a hobby of amateur bricklaying. With his own hands, he built a summer house, amongst others, a wall around the garden and a tree house for all of his children to enjoy. Elsewhere, there was a tennis court, a croquet lawn and a rose garden. And by the 1930s, more changes had been made, including the addition of a heated outdoor swimming pool and the construction of a large art studio where Winston could paint and relax. It's during this period that we're going to visit Chartwell and the Churchills, specifically in 1938. In two years' time, Winston Churchill will be appointed as British Prime Minister, and against overwhelming odds, he will lead the charge to victory in the Second World War, living on ever after in the hearts of the British people.
Of course, he didn't know that in 1938. In fact, the decade of the 1930s has been labelled as Churchill's wilderness years, a time when he found himself sidelined from much of political life. His party defeated and his popularity low, these must have been difficult times for both Churchills, especially without the foresight of what lay ahead. Still, he likely bore these hardships better than many would have, thanks to that indomitable spirit he was soon to be famous for. And because much of this time would be spent at home, no small consolation for a man who once said that a day away from Chartwell is a day wasted. So, with that in mind, let's step inside the Churchill's beloved home right now, joining the future Prime Minister at the start of his day. A firm believer in routine, Winston wakes at the same time each morning. And, as he does today, he takes a few moments to appreciate the quiet stillness of the hour. The smells of breakfast wafting through the house and the very room he wakes in. The walls of his bedroom are a creamy shade of white, sprinkled with pictures and photographs set within golden frames. Amongst these, there are portraits of his mother, Jenny, an American and daughter of a wealthy businessman, and his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, British aristocracy and a prominent politician himself in his time. Below this particular portrait is Winston's bed, made of a dark mahogany that perfectly complements its beige, patterned bedsheets. The bed sits upon a gorgeous Kashan rug, a striking mixture of reds, creams, blues and greens. With intricate floral patterns swirling around a central medallion, this rug is perhaps the most opulent item in this charming but simple room. Despite being grandson to the seventh Duke of Marlborough and a direct descendant of the first, Winston, it seems, has rather humble tastes. That's not to say that the room isn't lovely, especially as his manservant enters just after eight and draws back the long, ruby curtains, filling the room with soft daylight. Greeting his employer warmly, he then places a glass of orange juice down on the bedside table and promptly leaves the room. When he returns, five minutes later, Winston has propped himself upright against the pillows, with the bed covers pulled up to the waist of his pyjamas. Taking his last sip of the sweet, refreshing juice, he smiles at the light beaming through the window. Little cheers his spirits as much as the sight of sunshine through the glass. His eyes, already brighter than they were, sparkle at the sight of the tray carried in his servant's hands. On it, a large white plate displays the first meal of the day, 
a cooked English breakfast. Once it's set down before him, he pauses to savour the delicious smells wafting up towards him. Then, with knife and fork in hand, he tucks into his food. There's fried eggs with large orange yolks, beside golden sausages and crispy pink bacon. There's even some steak, leftovers from last night's dinner, beside fried red tomatoes and glistening button mushrooms. On a smaller plate, too, Winston has slices of golden toast that he coats with creamy yellow butter. Toasted to perfection, it makes a wonderful crunching sound with each bite. It's a hearty feast, and certainly indulgent. And eaten here in bed, it might be considered a rather lazy start to the day. Of course, for Winston Churchill, it's anything but. The day's newspapers have been placed on the table beside him, and the silver tray has been specially designed, allowing him to work in bed. And so, once his plate is half-eaten, he takes the newspaper at the top of the pile and begins reading. This is what he does for some time, poring over the papers, stopping at any important headlines that capture his interest. In between reading, he nibbles the buttery toast and sips from a cup of warm, delicious tea. As he's reading, he's joined by one of Chartwell's many animals, Jocks the cat. Sauntering into the bedroom, the marmalade-coloured cat leaps onto the bed and strolls straight towards his master. At this, Winston pauses his reading and welcomes the feline, stroking the velvety fur atop his head and shoulders. Jock's appreciative purrs echo about the room. This precious moment lasts for a few minutes, until, eventually, the cat retires to the end of the bed, curling up into a tiny orange ball. The manservant returns, bringing with him a fresh teapot and milk and letters from the post. So, for a while longer, Winston remains in bed, fortified by that warm, milky tea. One after another, he uses a letter opener to tear open the tops of many envelopes. He reads their contents in silence, giving them much thought and consideration. Just after ten o'clock, his private secretary enters the room. She positions herself at a chair near the bed, behind a desk where a large black typewriter sits ready for action. And for the next half hour, Winston dictates letters to friends, allies and political leaders in Britain and abroad. Throughout this period, he has been one of the few brave voices warning that war lies ahead. 
and though sidelined in public, these letters that he writes from the comfort of his bed will do much to gain him the support that he'll later come to depend on. Winston cares deeply about the protection of his country. He is at his most passionate when dictating these letters. His rich and spirited tone fills the small bedroom, resonating above the hum of fingers tapping at the typewriter, until the correspondence for the day is done. Following this, the secretary leaves, and Winston looks to the bedside table. Running a finger over its crowded shelves in three tiers, he selects the book he's currently enjoying. It's one of his favorites, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Leaning back into his pillow, he sits and reads chapter after chapter, gripped by the words on the page. It isn't until around half past 11 that Winston Churchill is ready to face the world outside his bedroom. He takes a long bath, drawn to exactly 98 degrees, whilst enjoying a cigar and a glass of whiskey. Afterwards, he changes into his clothes. Today, he wears a thin linen suit of navy pinstripe with a navy bowler hat. It's rather formal homeware by modern standards, though comfortable leisure wear of the time. At age 63, he's grey and balding, and more than a little plump around the waistline, though he has the panache and style of a much younger man. Of course, few men half his age can match his energy, and surely none can compete with his wide selection of hats. Indeed, Winston is a firm believer in preserving energy where he can in order to access it later when it's really needed. Thus, by remaining in bed until the late hours, he can wander through Chartwell with a spring in his step. Once he's taken a few minutes to gaze out from his bedroom window at least, to admire his grounds in the light of day. From here, Winston heads through the adjoining study, larger and grander than his bedroom, with high, beamed ceilings. This room is beautifully lit by two large rectangular windows. Like his bedroom, the study floor is lined with light wooden floorboards, topped by another stunning Persian rug. And here, instead of a bed, sits a beautiful mahogany desk before a bookcase reaching to the ceiling. Opposite the desk is a huge painted landscape, bursting with colour. The scene depicts a grand house standing in the distance. It's situated upon an island of green and surrounded by gorgeous blue-green water. Hanging just above the study's fireplace, this painting is the focal point of the room, a celebration of nature, bringing the outdoors in. Of all the rooms at Chartwell, one could argue that the study is the most important. 
though he doesn't yet know it, this will be the room in which Winston will compose those rousing wartime speeches, inspiring hope in millions. At present, the room is mostly used for the writing and dictation of his novels. A diligent author, he will come to write 43 books and 72 volumes over the course of his lifetime. He is currently working on his 12th book, The World Crisis, his sixth volume account of the First World War. Not right now, though. Writing comes far later on in Winston's day. In fact, he often won't retire here until after dinner, as late as midnight. Then, just as he spends the first few hours of each day working from his bed, he'll spend the last few hours before sleep writing in here. For now, though, he's only passing through, into the hallway and down two flights of stairs before arriving in the dining room. This is a wonderful room and a little more modern than the rest of the house. At its centre, upon a beige, hessian rug, is a large, round table of weathered oak. The chairs around it are upholstered in a creamy fabric, boasting a pattern of stunning white lilies. The leaves of these flowers are a vivid shade of emerald, an eye-catching colour that matches the room's many emerald curtains. The highlight of the dining room, though, it has to be said, are the five arched windows, stretching from floor to ceiling. Welcoming natural light into the room, they also offer anyone at the table a view of the Kentish countryside for miles around. Seated already at the table is Clementine, or Clemmy, as Winston affectionately calls her. He greets her, as he always does, with a kiss, before sitting down beside her. Together they eat lunch, a three-course meal, with claret for Clementine and champagne for Winston. There's soup, for starters, a selection of meats, breads and cheeses for the main course, and fruit salad for dessert. Winston is particularly fond of tinned mandarin orange. Lunchtime is the couple's first encounter of the day, and so they have much to discuss. Topics include the affairs of the house and garden, from the Churchill's children and their pursuits away from home to the many goldfish who reside in Chartwell's pond. Political matters are also debated. Indeed, it will be said years later that Clementine Churchill was her husband's most influential political advisor, his secret weapon through the trying times that, as of now, still lay ahead. After lunch, Winston heads out into the grounds, his wife by his side. Together they walk through the antique door at the building's entrance, pausing for a moment on the terrace to admire the view. A sloping lawn, perfectly manicured, 
stretches out below and before them. The grass glistens beautifully in the afternoon sunlight. Then, arm in arm, they continue onwards, heading right along the pathway at the top of the steps and, soon after, stepping down into Lady Churchill's Rose Garden. This section of the grounds was designed by Clementine herself and has a pathway running crisscross above the ground, forming four perfect rectangles of flower beds. What's more, in the shadow of the house, and with two walls at either side, it's the perfect sun trap in which the plants might thrive. And thrive they do, showing off their blooms of deep ruby red, purest white, sunny yellow, and the prettiest pink. The fragrance of these flowers is rich and luscious, and it hangs in the air, a joy to all who encounter it. Roses are a particular favourite of Clementine's. She admires them for their sweet and pungent fragrance, their varied, bright colours, and the beauty of their soft, velvety petals. But they have sentimental value to her also, for it was in the Rose Garden at Blenheim Palace that Winston proposed to the future Mrs. Churchill. And it's these precious flowers that he's gifted to her at every occasion since. Birthdays, anniversaries, and of course, St. Valentine's Day. It might even be said that their marriage is bound by roses. Being so very happy here, Clementine bids her husband to go on now without her, whilst she tends to her roses, contemplating their beauty for just a little longer. Happily, he obliges, walking only a short distance away to his beloved pond. There, he picks up a tin of fish food left upon a bench, and he walks towards the pond's edge before pausing on the paving stones at the pebbled shore. Then he opens the tin, pulls out a spoon, and begins calling to his fish, greeting them warmly as his little darlings. These darlings, as he calls them, are a species of golden orf. The pond is home to a thousand of them in total. Torpedo-shaped in varying sizes, they swim about the water in groups. In striking colours of yellow and orange with sides of iridescent silver, they are easily visible in the pond. They zigzag their way through the turquoise water, beaming like rays of underwater sunlight. Right now, these fish are even more visible seemingly responding to their master's greeting. Gliding towards the pond's shallow edge, they rise to the surface in search of the fish food, lovingly scattered about the water. For a few minutes, Winston simply watches and admires them. He loves these golden orf, finding them as amusing at times as they are attractive. 
especially right now, as they dart about so chaotically in search of food and even occasionally jump above the water like dolphins. Some days, Winston will watch these fish for hours. He'll sit upon the bench in the shade of a massive old oak tree and he'll quietly meditate on the sights and sounds above and around the water. Today, though, he has other interests in mind. And once Clemmy rejoins him by the pond's embankment, the two walk on towards the north of the estate. There's a comfortable silence between them, allowing each to listen to the birds chirping, the leaves rustling, and their own footsteps trudging upon the ground. Together, they examine the many different trees. There are chestnuts and oaks, maple, ash and birch, each showcasing a different shade of green. And every so often, they pass one of the many cherry blossom trees that are dotted around the property, a glorious splash of pink, dazzling against the landscape. To the couple's right is the swimming pool, a patch of cobalt blue set against a vivid green carpet. Oval in shape, the pool is internally heated and in the evening lit by floodlights. As thorough as ever, Winston consulted scientists before filling the pool. He wanted to know the best means of maintaining and cleaning it. Aside from walking, swimming is one of the few types of exercise that Winston can enjoy. And all things considered, it's easy to see why. Situated on raised land, the pool looks down upon Chartwell's lower lake and the vast green countryside around it. It's one of the few pools in the world where one might combine their strokes with a view of black swans gliding about a lake. Naturally, though, the views are even better at the lake itself, where the Churchills head next. Soon thereafter, they are standing beside the water's edge, admiring these exquisite creatures. With large, feathered bodies and elongated necks, swans are truly the most graceful and regal of all waterbirds, and the ones at Chartwell are particularly striking. With their magnificent black plumage and bright red bills, they are captivating creatures. Few amongst us would fail to be awestruck at the sight of them. Native to Australia, these black swans were a gift from Sir Philip Sassoon, a well-known politician of the day who must have known of Winston's great love of wildlife. Certainly, they're a gift that's been well-received, enjoying daily visits from Winston and being spoken to in the same affectionate tones that the golden orfs enjoy. After a short while by the lake, the couple walk onwards, over the grassland at the back of the house, towards the pavilion-come-art studio, set behind the apple orchard. Once again, 
they part ways. Clementine opts for a solitary stroll around the orchard, perhaps even picking some ripened fruits before returning inside to enjoy a good book. Winston, on the other hand, heads towards the art studio, a charming red brick building with a patio at its front. Once inside, he pulls on his long white overcoat and arranges his brushes, oil paints, and cleaning solvents upon a table beside him. Then, sitting in his chair, opposite his easel, he begins squeezing out the paints one by one. There's every color of the rainbow, with shades and textures so delicious that they appear almost edible. Just squeezing them out is a mesmerizing process, and the colors grow ever more enchanting when blended with other shades. Today, Winston begins by mixing a fusion of reds and browns upon the palette, and then he's ready to put paintbrush to canvas. Delicately, he brushes downwards in long, graceful strokes, adding life to a red brick building in the heart of the countryside. From the building itself to the trees, fields and lakes that surround it, it's easily recognizable. He's painting Chartwell. Around the room, the walls are covered with many more of his paintings. There are portraits and landscapes. Many are of his British homeland, but others stem from his travels abroad. There are the Atlas Mountains viewed in Morocco, the Great Pyramids of Giza, one from close up and a second from afar. Another is from Cassis, a beautiful image of the sea at daybreak. There's even one from Flanders in Belgium. Winston has long been passionate about this hobby, so much so that he took his painting materials to the Western Front in World War I when he was engaged in active military service. With such a body of work, one would never guess that he didn't start painting until he was 41 years old. Then again, Winston never does anything by halves, as the expression goes, no matter how late in life he begins it. In fact, he was encouraged to dabble by his sister-in-law, beginning with watercolors and very soon after moving into oil paints. Like writing, painting would become an antidote to the bouts of depression that he was prone to throughout his lifetime. And by the end of his life, there would be more than 500 pieces attributed to him. Here, in this studio, there is nothing but peace. In the quiet room, the only sound is the gentle stroking of the paintbrush on canvas, occasionally followed by the dabbing and mixing of more paints. One stroke after another, he brings the scene to life in glorious color, all the while seeming completely absorbed in the process. One gains a sense, watching him now, that the finished result 
isn't nearly as important as the process of painting itself and the peace and satisfaction that this brings. After some time, Winston stops, feeling that he has painted enough for today. For a few minutes, he clears away his things, meticulously cleaning his paintbrushes and palette. Then he takes off his overcoat, admiring the fresh paint stains on the white fabric, and he leaves the studio with a smile upon his face. He doesn't go far, though, because right beside the studio is evidence of another Churchillian hobby, an unfinished brick wall at the garden's edge. Taught the skill of bricklaying by two of his employees at Chartwell, Winston now enjoys this rather unusual way to spend his time. He finds that this kind of physical exertion nicely balances out the mental effort required when writing. And in fact, he is known to have set himself a target at times of 200 bricks and 2,000 words a day. Ready for use, in front of the wall, are cement, bricks, and a silver trowel to lay them with. And so, with his smile remaining, he picks up the trowel and pushes it into the cement, before laying it down upon a bare section of wall. He pulls the trowel over its surface, smoothing out the brown, sludgy cement. It's an action not unlike that of the paintbrush sweeping across canvas, and the resulting sounds are equally pleasing to the ear. Carefully, then, he takes a single brick and places it down an inch away from its neighbor. He presses it down with his hands, ensuring that it sinks into the cement, and he taps at its surface with the trowel. Three times for good measure. Lastly, he refills the trowel and pours more cement into the space between the bricks, and he scrapes off the excess, smoothing it down before repeating the whole process again. He continues until around four o'clock, when he sets down his tools and begins walking back towards the house. Like his wife, he walks through the orchard, enjoying the sweet fragrance of ripened apples. There are many types of apples grown here, Bramley and Pippin, Sunset and Duchess's favorite. He pauses beneath a large Bramley tree, casting his eyes over the fruit. One particular apple hangs upon a nearby branch, its skin a mixture of reds, greens and yellows, so lovely that it seems more like a watercolor painting of an apple than the thing itself. Real, though, it is. And lured in by its enchanting scent, Winston pulls it from the tree and bites into its delicious, juicy flesh. And so he walks, munching his apple as he exits the orchard, soon passing a small stone house at present, the building is used for curing meats and fish, but in eight years' time, it will be transformed into Chartwell's Butterfly House. 
With the help of a local expert, Winston will raise and release many different species of butterfly here. There will be green-veined whites, speckled woods, and peacocks, among others. Here, he will sit and watch for hours as these stunning beauties emerge from their chrysalises before flying out into his wonderful garden. Winston searched for butterflies as a young boy and is no less passionate about them today. Already, he's consulted breeding experts, inquiring as to how he might attract even the rarest of these creatures to Chartwell. He's given precise instructions to his gardeners about the kind of insect-friendly flora that are to be planted. We can see this now as he walks up the stone steps towards the front of the house, arriving at the terrace whose sides are flanked by flower beds. There are cones of purple budlia, beside cloud-like blooms of red and white valerian, many with bees and butterflies flying around them. There are the cupped heads of white and lilac thistles, displaying star-shaped collars of green at their necks, and the fragrant lavender, with as calming and beautiful a scent as one could ever hope to encounter. It stays with Winston, this soft and soothing fragrance, as he enters through the antique door, taking the two flights of stairs up to his bedroom. Here, he draws shut the ruby curtains at the window and changes once again into his pyjamas. And, as he does daily, he settles down beneath the bedsheets for his afternoon nap. Later, he will take his second bath, once again drawn to exactly 98 degrees, and, as before, he will enjoy it with a whiskey and a cigar. He'll dress then in a suit and tie with the chain of a pocket watch visible at his waistcoat before heading down for dinner at seven o'clock. He'll eat and drink upon the lily-patterned chairs. And tonight, as is frequently the case, he'll entertain not only his wife, but the high-ranking officials. Even at dinner, Winston's thoughts are with the country he holds so dear. After dinner, he'll kiss Clemmy goodnight and move to his study, working on his book until the early hours. Finally, at around three or four o'clock in the morning, he'll step into the adjoining bedroom with only sleep on his mind. All of this is for later, though. For now, Winston Churchill can set his work aside and lie back in his bed. He might cast his mind over the delights of the day, the reddish-brown of Chartwell upon the canvas and the layer of bricks newly added to his wall, his darling golden orf jumping above the water, and the sweet smell of roses that reminds him of his wife. Then, closing his eyes, he can drift away into a deep and restful sleep.